0: And so really, you know, as an OT, that's I can't not view it like that. You know, I can't look at just the hand. I have to look at what else is going on um, because the hand is not isolated from, from anything else.
1: Welcome to the Raising Young Children in Wake County podcast brought to you by the Project Enlightenment Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King. Former school psychologist, currently a child psychologist, and a former parent of a child in Projects Demonstration Preschool. I also recently served as the board chair and am currently still serving on the Project Enlightenment Foundation as a board member. The goal of this podcast is to expand services to the young children in Wake County through parent education. In this 10-episode podcast series, we will include interviews with experts in early childhood education, psychology, and pediatrics to discuss topics including the importance of play, managing toddler behavior, language and motor development, kindergarten readiness, how to set up routines, and parent mental wellness. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Raising Young Children in Wake County podcast so today we are talking all about sensory and motor development and we have one of my colleagues and local occupational therapist rose langston with us today welcome rose thank you i'm
0: so excited to be here
1: yes and so i'm gonna give a little background on rose and then we're gonna jump into talking about all the different things that come up with motor and sensory development and birth through age five These are lots of common questions that parents ask me as a child psychologist that I don't always know the answer to, but I always know kind of when we should talk to an OT. So this is Rose's background. She graduated with her master's degree from Grand Valley State University in Michigan in 2009. She moved to Raleigh specifically to join the team at Pediatric Possibilities and fulfill her dream of specializing in sensory integration therapy therapy in a clinic that shared her love for kids, passion for ongoing learning, and desire to provide effective therapy in a playful and respectful environment. Throughout her 12 years working in pediatrics, she's had the privilege to receive advanced training in sensory, motor, and feeding areas with the experts in each specialty, but of course, as I know as well, has learned just as much from the kids themselves. She lives with her husband and boxer mix rescue dog and loves to be outdoors in her free time. So let's just dive right in, Rose. So some of our listeners, parents of young children, especially if it's their first child, they may not even know what a pediatric occupational therapist does. So will you explain just in general the services um, pediatric OTs offer when working with young children?
0: Yes, it's such a confusing title. Um, So occupation in my field doesn't mean job. Um, it kind of refers to the older sense of the word. So you might talk about how you occupy your time. So occupations are any meaningful, purposeful things that humans do. And so for kids, their occupations are play. Play is the big one. Um, activities of daily living like brushing their teeth, getting dressed, maybe cleaning up their toys, going to school. So what an OT does is when there are difficulties with any of these occupations, we look at all the layers of what's working and what's not working to figure out where the breakdown is. So. In my work, I'm often looking under the surface at how the sensory and motor functions are developing among other areas, see what's working well, and then kind of see what foundational pieces need to be stronger for the purpose of um, maximizing success function and independence with any of those daily occupations.
1: Yeah, so let's start by just talking about babies first. So what are some ways that parents can start promoting motor development, even with infants. And then of course, when they begin moving, you know, between six and 12 months, roughly.
0: Yes. Such a good question. So there are so many really good, simple things that parents can do. So first of all, with babies, there, our culture somehow gives parents the impression that it's, a race like earlier is better. Um, as far as motor development, to the point where you know some of his parents prop their babies up to help them practice sitting or practice standing before they're ready, or you know rushing through crawling to get to walking when really shortcuts aren't helpful. Um, we develop things in this sequence for a reason, for a purpose. So there's a ton of developmental value that a kid gets from laying on the blanket on the floor. So there's a reason we roll before we crawl, we crawl before we. Walk, walk. Um, And there are important things that develop at each of those stages that are harder to sort of go back and fill in later if we skip steps. So um, with babies, don't rush the process. Honor the developmental design. We have a lot of what we call containers in our culture. So these are things that prop babies up in positions that they wouldn't be able to get themselves in or out of on their own. So things like bumbo seats, car seats, Simple, natural, flat surfaces are the best for development. So if your baby starts to pull the stand before they crawl, some parents think, oh, this means they're ahead of the curve, but I'd recommend actually backing down, get that baby back on the floor, crawl around with them, make it fun, maximize crawling as much as possible because um, there's so many important developmental things that happen throughout those processes.
1: What are some examples? Let's just take crawling, for instance, because that is one that you know parents will say, well, I guess when kids start to crawl, it stresses parents out the most. Right. Because yeah. they get to stuff. So that's often one where parents will say, Oh, I'm so glad they're, you know, pulling up to stand because they're in one place now. Or, or if they're crawling late, you know, they're worried about it. So what is happening between, you know, the sitting up and the pulling up? So it would be the crawling, like that, what is actually happening and what kids can see and how they're feeling the floor? Like, what is an example of why that's important?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, unfortunately, crawling has been removed from the developmental norm. So, it's not even necessarily going to be flagged if your baby does start to skip crawling or crawl late. But you talk to any pediatric therapist, PT, OT, even speech therapist, and they'll tell you there's so much value in it because that's where um, kids are starting to learn um, their body awareness. So, the feeling of their arms and hands against the floor, the way their visual systems develop in that field. Basic foundational body awareness and spatial awareness are built at those points. Also infants are born with what we call primitive reflexes and basically what these are is these are automatic things that are sort of built into the blueprints of our bodies to teach movement patterns. And so they're there for a purpose and they're there for a short period of time. But then as the baby learns how to move on their own in non-reflex ways, then those reflexes should start to fade. And when babies skip crawling, that's a lot harder. So it can sort of develop ripple effects later on in life.
1: Yeah. And I get this question a lot and I actually don't know the answer to this, but what's the deal with army crawling? So army crawling, meaning when kids are not pushed up, on yeah. their um, knees and hands, but they're dragging themselves on their elbows. I'm just curious about that one. Is that fine? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't actually get this question a lot, so hopefully I'll be able oh, to give some help. Okay. Helpful I hear it a lot. Now,
1: because now I'm wondering if it's, it's similar to any, um, you know, motor weaknesses because, you know, most of the kids that I see have some sort of motor weaknesses at some point. And so I'll get yeah. that question. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's just a normal step in learning to crawl. So okay. it's pretty normal. You know, as you go from tummy time, you sort of learn, you know, how to push up and, and Ooh, when I, when I push with my hands, my head gets higher and then you sort of learn your arms first before you learn your legs cause you can see them. They're right there. Um, and those are what some of the reflexes do too. So there's a reflex of, Oh, when I turn, my head, the arm on that side pops out and that's to teach hand regards. That's to teach the baby. Oh, hey, that's my hand. Ooh, I can move it. And sort of the baby learns that they have a body and they can move their body. Army crawling is a stage toward that four point hands and knees crawl that we know about. But in cases where a baby only army crawls, it probably just means they need more time, more practice. practice. Um, There could be some difficulties with body awareness, with um, hip and core strength. And so my guess is if that happens more, it's probably because it's a child who maybe didn't do as much tummy time. And so they're having to work a little bit harder.
1: Yeah. Let's talk more about tummy time. Um, I know anyone who Googles, you know, like movement benefits of babies, you're going to get tummy time. There are a lot of people that are talking about that now. And pediatricians, of course, recommend it because babies, I think we're still recommending babies sleep on their backs. Yeah. So because they're resting and sleeping on their backs and napping on their backs, tummy time is important. So tell us all the reasons. What are all the benefits? <laughs> for this? Some infants do not like it. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. Well, and you're exactly right. The reason that they don't like it is it's not a position they're in very much because they sleep on their backs. So they get comfortable on their backs. They get comfortable with that plane. Um, and being on your tummy is is work. But it's really, really important work. So there's so many benefits of tummy time. There, there are more benefits that we're, we're even learning, but kind of this idea of You know, things are designed to develop in order and develop in groups. So when babies are on their tummy, um, that's an important developmental period for their visual system. So they're learning how to move their eyes. They're learning how to coordinate their neck movements with their eye movements and perceptual skills, which are always learned. Perceptual skills are developed in that plane first. Um, and then eventually we have to learn the, the three-dimensional planes, right? So, yeah. um, and then as they're laying on their tummy, you know, if you only ever laid on your back, you wouldn't have body awareness, you'd have back awareness. <laughs> so as they lay on their tummy, they're learning, oh, I have a front, I have a back. They I, they shift their weight, I have a left side, I have a right side. So these early, early notes of body awareness are really developed just by spending time and feeling the pressure and learning, okay, here's my shape, here's my size, Here's here's where I end and spatial awareness is similar Um, and then the initial strength of their core their shoulders their arms we talked about that pushing up against gravity, which is so hard at first. Um, But the more they do it, the more they develop the strength and the skill with that. And then we're going to get to sensory stuff later, I'm sure, but early vestibular development. So your inner ear, your sense of movement, balance, and gravity. um, That happens in that plane too, because as we extend our neck to look up from off of the ground, it coordinates with the, the muscles in our back to activate our trunk and core, and then vice versa too. So just that relationship. Between head movement and then the how your core and trunk muscles are prepared.
1: So, I know parents listening are like, wow, this is like so many more moving parts and details than you may have realized. But I don't want anyone to stress about that because babies are smart. Like, this is just what they do. We just need to make sure we give them the opportunity and the positions. You know, I know this about. Um, you know, regulation and social development of when, you know, they mimic our facial expressions and they're just wired to to roll out these skills. We just have to make sure we're doing all the things and, and not having them in supported seated positions too much and letting them be on the floor um, and experience, you know, their natural environments um, as much as we can. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, within reason. I mean, we have to put kids in car seats. Right. You have to go take a shower and and, and keep the kids exactly. exactly. safe. Exactly. Where it becomes a problem is when kids spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours in those positions. Um, that's really just where we kind of get in their way. So that's a wonderful point that you said. Like they have this natural drive, and it's just our particular cultural societal um, norms and factors where we we accidentally end up getting in the in the way of these of these natural things developing too. So, you know, with with older kids, you know, we talked a little bit about babies, but older kids providing them opportunities to move in 3D space, right? So, over, under, through, around, between, you know, all of the prepositions and, you know, kids have this drive anyway. It's fun and it feels good cuz that's the best thing they can do for their bodies. And even risk taking, you know, with again within reason, of course, but risk taking has value because kids are learning through this how to hone their inner sense of, you know, how far is too far, how high is too high, how fast is too fast. And allowing them to make some of these mistakes in these areas helps them learn from their own inner perception so they don't rely on you to make the safety judgments and they can develop their own inner sense. Of this so you know some other helpful things parents can do with with kids at this stage is use noticing language and i'm sure you use noticing language in your field too so you know, noticing your socks look really slippery as you're climbing that ladder, you know, or or language designed to draw their attention to their own bodies and, and make them focus on their perception. So, you know, check in with your body. Does it feel ready for this? And that's usually more helpful than just saying, be careful, be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for most kids, this will build their confidence and actually build their their skills so that they, they can be more trustworthy and, and they, they can Make safer choices, but to
1: do that, we have to get out of their way a little bit and and, and let them make some mistakes. Um, and what you're describing right now, I I think is where there are many areas where occupational therapy and and psychology or or kind of emotional development intersect. Mm-hmm. But this is a big one when I think mm-hmm. about the parent child relationship. So parents, we all bring some anxiety to this dynamic. So your kid is like scaling the kitchen cabinets, for (laughs) instance, you. So this is something that anyone who, you know, has worked with any type of developmental delays or like, no, see, working with kids who can't scale the kitchen cabinets. The first thing we think of is like, look at those motor skills. <laughs> and the first thing the parent thinks is, oh my God, you're going to get hurt. So I say that you know, there's everything's relative, <laughs> but within reason, you know, of course you have to keep your child safe, but check yourself. If you feel like you have the tendency to have a knee-jerk reaction or panic when your child's doing something off the ground or a little bit higher up. The best way to practice this, I think, is at the playground Mm -hmm. because playground structures are, you know, generally speaking, built to be fairly safe. And they're things that we, you know, need to stay close by for, but also kids are problem-solving stuff on playground structures. So they could be much safer than you know letting your kid explore in the kitchen, for instance. So yeah, I right. think you know, when you're at the park, you know, watching what they explore, if they're going to climb a little higher, be there, but watch how quickly you intervene and and maybe don't intervene as as quickly as your anxiety is telling you to. Because like Rose just said, building their sense of nervousness within them, like, Oh, this is kind of high, but I think I can do it. Those are all internal messages. They're probably thinking to themselves and we want them to listen to that. Mm-hmm. and We want them to feel their body and listen to what they can do or what they're nervous about. Um, and I, I, know I've learned this from my floor time training. Um, and we've actually talked about this in several of the other podcast interviews of, I had to sit on my hands in play therapy training, because I wanted to jump in and help. That's just my personality, but the time you give kids to just figure it out, or if they can't, then they, they ask you for help. That's a wonderful moment of problem solving for them. And you can watch how they figure it out. And so all of those things are are very integrated at that mm-hmm. risk taking stage of mm-hmm. motor development.
0: Yeah, and that's problem solving too. Yeah. You know, I very much look at problem solving. Well, oftentimes heavily in in a in a physical problem solving sense, right? So. You know, we're we're very busy grown-ups, so it's often easiest for us to just do things for the kids or or give them the answer or you know, pull their sock on for them. But whenever possible, it's so, so valuable to support them through that problem-solving process, and we can hold space with them through mm-hmm. any frustration so that they feel validated and and also capable. So sometimes with kids, I set this expectation by saying, Oh, this idea looks really, really hard. It might take 10 tries. So they don't assume they've failed or it's impossible when their first attempt doesn't work, right? Or or holding space by even just validating, like, hey, you're working so hard on this, you know, because as adults we have this anxiety, or we can take one look and realize this is not gonna work, but mm-hmm. allowing them to go through and figure it out on their own and mm-hmm. and mistakes are learning, and obviously like within reason for safety but you know like you said there's just this tendency to to jump in too much too fast and grown-ups just talk too much and so sometimes there's just so much value in, like you said sitting on your hands giving it a moment, just being beside them and being quiet. Because I think that desire comes from, I want my kid to be successful, or I don't want this kid to feel defeated. But I think unintentionally, if we do things for them, that accidentally sends them message that they can't do it on their own. And so, you know lots of the kids i know feel so frustrated so defeated and this noticing language is good here too so even just saying like i'm noticing you're working really hard or or hey like if we feel like we want to give a clue i noticed when you moved your hands before you moved your feet, it almost worked. Or, hey, that was a, a great thought to, to slow down on, on this slippery tile. Things like that to where, you know, we can sort of give little clues or, or give little kind of like the minimal necessary involvement while still being with them and, and helping them to feel supported, but not interrupting their ability to work through that problem solving on their own.
1: Yeah, for sure. So as kids are getting a little bit older, they they are feeling their bodies, they're developing their gross motor skills, which is whole body. Um, let's talk a little bit about fine motor skills or just with your hands. What are the appropriate expectations for three and four-year-olds with fine motor? Because this is you know something you'll read about is um, preschoolers maybe being asked to do In my opinion, maybe too many things too early with fine motor (laughs) tabletop activities. Um, Their hands are literally developing from ages three to five. So, talk to us about fine motor development.
0: Thank you for bringing this up. Yep, you are preaching to the choir here. (laughs)
1: For a minute.
0: Um, Yeah. So, I mean, it's really unfortunate that these skills have been pushed earlier and earlier and earlier at the expense of other skills because we have this narrow laser focus on academics. So again, we think that sooner means better, um, but kids just aren't developmentally ready to, to write yet at, at the ages that it's being started. And, and inadvertently we're making it a more frustrating process than it should be because again, things happen at different stages for a reason. And so these are the ages that kids should be exploring, right, they, they're tactile, they're moving, they're learning about the world coloring, drawing. Sure, that stuff's great, but they don't really have the foundation yet for forming these precise letters. Um, they're still developing the muscles and the arches in, in their hands. So we have these arches that, that we have to develop that enable us to do all these you know, in-hand manipulations. So toys like blocks, Play-Doh, activities like climbing. Um, One thing I didn't mention about crawling is that actually helps to build stability in your wrist and your fingers, helps develop those arches that we need later on. So all of those are the things that will really truly develop the foundational skills needed for future precision with handwriting. And again, all of this happens best through play and creativity and the kid's inner drive. And so, you know, when they do start you know, drawing and coloring, doing it in a play-based way, you know, so I'm not drilling here's how you write a letter O. Maybe we're drawing a circle for a face, or maybe little circular bubbles or balloons. But, you know, in general, you know, talking about this this pressure that parents feel and anxiety that that parents feel to push these academic skills and how that just kind of seeps into play. It kind of makes it feel like like constant quizzing so not even just in the sense of you know fine motor skills but like drilling what color is this how many sheep are there you know what shape is that and really there's so much more value and joy in joining with the child and noticing Mm -hmm. what puts the sparkle in their eyes and building off of that and play is again I know we're preaching to each other's choirs here but play is inherently educational right not just Mm -hmm. in the narrow academic sense that we think of it but Plays where kids build their social skills, their creativity, the, the motor and problem-solving skills that we talked about. And these things are harder to measure, but you know, I would argue they're much more important than whether or not I can draw a great letter W at age four. Yeah. Um, but, but also, these are the skills, you know these, these things that we sort of undervalue in our culture when they are allowed to develop, when we get out of the kid's way then they will also optimize academic performance. So really, you know, it can be toward the same goal, um, but just really respecting the developmental process through that.
1: Yeah. So there is a big misconception, I think, in our education system and culture that having kids do literacy skills, whether that's reading or writing earlier, is going to help them be stronger in later in elementary school, which actually isn't true. They need all of these social, emotional, motor, sensory integration milestones to unfold in play when they're young, because that's the foundation of doing those things on paper or at a desk later on when you're old enough to show what you know. So this is all in the building of the what you know, and then later you're just able to show what you know. So thank you for that description. A question I often get from parents um, who are nervous about fine motor skills is you know, my kid is switching hands a lot, especially with four year olds. They're fisting their grasp, you know, so just some to settle everyone's peace of mind, you know, what is expected with, you know, switching hands and before kids, you know, we call this being able to cross midline in the Mm -hmm. brain. um, And then fisted versus pincer, which is when you're holding, of course, with three fingers, right? Am I doing that right? You're so so good. Yeah, yeah. you're dropping knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) These are all the questions I get. And I'm like, that's a question for (laughs) an OT. But I so I think this is what it is. So yeah, just those are the most common questions I do get from parents of young children. So just in general, the milestones around those things. So because I know parents are curious about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So handedness, like, am I right-handed? Am I left-handed? That is something that a lot of times we, again, <laughs> surprise, we push it too early. You know, I think it's 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 pretty typical up through age. I think six. I can't remember the exact statistic off the top of my head because um, I have kids that are. Way past that, that are still working on that. So around age six, you know, if they're if they're still switching hands, that's not a huge concern. I would tell parents, you know, if you're concerned about your child's pencil grasp, we need to sort of back it up and look at the rest of the body. So when I get a referral for a kid with handwriting concerns i've never ever seen it where the problem lies between the wrist and the fingers right so the problem is not in the hand usually we can trace it back up you know it's like that old song the (laughs) the hand bone is connected to the arm bone and um so so really tracing it back there's there's probably a reason other than just in the hand. And yes, we work on hand coordination. Yes, we work on, you know, how does your thumb oppose your other fingers? How do we pick things up? How do we move things from your fingertips to your palm? But usually this kind of goes back to my, my crawling soapbox. In order to have precision out here at your hand, you need to have stability up here at your trunk. So you need to have a stable core and trunk. You have need to have a stable shoulder. Um, some of those reflexes that we talked about, like you said, crossing midline, um, that is based also on a reflex. And so if those things aren't Solid. we're going to kind of constantly be hitting up against that wall. Like, yes, we can work on just the hand skills, but really if if I don't have a solid core and then my hand is all the way out on on this piece of paper trying to draw, if my core is wobbly, my arm is going to be even more wobbly and my hand is going to be even more wobbly. Or I'm going to have to kind of use some of these funky postures that kids get with like leaning on the table, leaning on their hand, because what they're doing is they're looking for stability because they're thinking about too many things at once. And so I'm focused so hard on my fine motor skills that I don't have the capacity to work on holding myself upright and stabilizing my shoulder. So when some of these automatic things aren't solid, they really start to come out with these more detailed, higher level skills. And that's where the breakdown often
1: happens. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I think that's so helpful for parents to understand that um, it's so much, there's so much going on in this development. It's so much more detailed than it appears to be. And we just have to give it time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like the iceberg, right? So there's the little piece that we can see on the surface, which is like, Ooh, my kid really struggles with spacing or they're reversing their letters and their D's and B's get confused, but that is all built on all this huger, huger under the surface piece, um, like an iceberg. And there are things that are either making that work or, or not making that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, you know, as an OT, that's, I can't not view it like that. You know, I can't look at just the hand. I have to look at what else is going on um, because the hand
1: is not isolated from, from anything else. Right. Okay. So let's talk about sensory development. This is um, one of my biggest referrals that crosses with OT just because a lot of sensory dysregulation uh, presents like behavior and presents like this what is happening here and so I will get the behavioral question first and then delve into um more of what's going on most of the kids I work with it is not any kind of behavior that is intentionally trying to avoid something sometimes it is but um a lot of time it is a sensory overwhelm so um, bust our myth for us that there are only five senses. and talk to <laughs> us about um, all these big words that OTs use that if a parent has ever talked to an OT, they've heard these words and they're like, what does that mean? So I'm talking about vestibular proprioceptive and interoceptive, and I may have missed another one.
0: No, you got it. You got all of them, even interoceptive, which depending on who you talk to might be part of proprioception or might be separate depending on okay. you know what, what you read. Um, it's really unfortunate we have all these big words (laughs) like there's just so much jargon but um so yeah so there's so there's the the five senses that we're really familiar with that we learn in school we sing little songs about um and then there's some hidden ones which are just as important as the ones that we are familiar with so I mentioned super briefly earlier your vestibular sense which is in your inner ear it tells us uh where your body is in relation to gravity so am I sitting upright or am I Am I tilted at an angle? Um, am I moving? If so, how fast? In what direction? This is this sense that you can kind of think about if you're in an elevator and you can feel that you're moving, even though nothing in your five senses is changing. It's just that sense of of movement. That's your inner ear telling you, hey, you're you're moving. You're in an elevator. Oops, now it stopped. And then proprioception um, literally means sense of self. So it's easy to think of as basically your body awareness. So it helps you to know where each body part is in relation to the other. Um, If I want to scratch my nose, my proprioceptive system knows exactly what muscles to activate in what order and with what force, <laughs> so that I can find my nose on the first try, scratch it with just the right amount of pressure. Um, and without that system, that proprioceptive awareness, I might have to use my eyes to guide my hand, and I might miss my nose on the first try. It'd be very awkward, but that's just that sense of, of, of where where am I? Where are my body parts in relation to the other, and how how do I move them? Um, and then interoception is your inner sense of self. So proprioception, muscles and joints. Interoception is your organs.
1: So am I hungry? Do I need to use the bathroom? Yep. And so sometimes I will see um, lots and lots of kids with some weaknesses in interoception that will have um, concerns with toileting or concerns with just independence. With it can affect some of the independence milestones just because. These inner signals, you know, we can't, you know, tell our kids when they need to go to the bathroom, (laughs) you know, like these are internal systems, sometimes pain and heat or another other interoceptive situations, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those, those kind of travel through your, your tactile, your, your skin Mm -hmm. system, your route of touch too, but you Mm -hmm. can have internal pain too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, what are some concerns that might come up from really birth to five, you know, at any time? And if there are certain ages to be looking for stuff, let us know that too. So concerns that can come up in terms of disruptions to the development of these systems or what that might look like and and what's going on in a child's nervous system.
0: Yes, yes. Sensory issues are so hard to understand because when things are working well, we don't notice them. So if you are a person who's never had sensory issues, it's really hard to relate to I think the good thing is in our society there's more and more general awareness that there that there's a thing called sensory issues. Um, I think the downside of that is nobody really understands it. There's a lot of confusing, contradictory, inaccurate information out there. So I think it's helpful to understand there's there's two basic kinds of sensory processing. So we take information in whether it's from inside our bodies or outside our bodies and we, and we use it for for two different purposes. So the one that's easier to understand is using this information for skill. So this more big words, this is called sensory discrimination. Um, So you can just think of it as information for the purpose of skill. So my example of scratching my nose was using the information about the location of my body parts to do this successfully. When it's working, it seems to be automatic, easy magic. I think anytime we learn something new, we become a little more aware of the work that our bodies and brains are doing under the surface. Um, So I remember when I was learning to drive, how overwhelmed I felt, right? You have to think about where are the pedals? How hard do I push them? I have to figure out this new visual spatial skill of checking my mirrors judging the distance and speed of other cars. I have to steer the just right amount without turning the wheel too far. I have to remember to push the brakes and find the turn signal before making a turn. I have to pay attention to the road signs. And on top of that, you want me to stay between these teeny tiny little (laughs) narrow lines, right? So like all of my sensory systems are working so hard to do something new. 25 miles per hour feels really, really fast. So I think this, this sort of helps, or if you've ever you know, tried to learn a new skill or a sport or or trying to play the drums, right? Where each of your limbs is doing something different. I think that shows how hard your bodies and brains have to work and how detailed this information has to be. Um, And when it goes well, it's under the surface, but if it's, if it's really, really hard, that's when we sort of start to notice that these, these functions exist. So when this sensory discrimination isn't working well for kids, they're not getting enough information from their sensory systems in order to develop skills or or adapt skills as easily as they should. So everyday things feel way harder for them, like like me trying to learn to play the drums, you know, so a kid trying to learn how to pump a swing or or do jumping jacks or, you know, climb onto a, a step's feels like me trying to learn to play the drums so that first route information for skill the other pathway that sensory information travels would it, it it actually does this before we can use it for skill but this is called the modulation system so this is easier to think of as your threat detection system right so this is the scanner at the airport before anything can go through it needs to be scanned for safety or danger And if this system detects threat, it will activate your protective responses. So fight or flight. And when the scanner is working well, it can be turned up or turned down. So more sensitive or less sensitive. So I think the example that maybe can help grownups relate to is 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 think of a situation where you feel threatened or vulnerable, right? So let's pretend I'm driving and I ran out of gas and I'm all alone, I'm walking in an unknown place and I get lost and I'm walking down a dark alley and maybe there are snakes or something. So in this really vulnerable situation, if I hear a, a leaf crunch on the ground behind me, how am I gonna react? I'm startle, right? I'm gonna have this big like ah even though it's just a leaf crunching or if another leaf goes fluttering down in my peripheral vision, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna freak out. And then we need to emphasize that these reactions are automatic. So I'm reacting before I even know what I'm reacting to, let alone have time to think. So this is the function when you touch a hot stove and you pull your hand away before you even realize, ouch, that was hot. Like that information comes later because the first thing is protection. So we pull away first and then we realize what's really going on. So me in a dark alley, my modulation system is turned up to a 10 Things are not safe. My life might depend on me picking up every little detail and reacting to it. And this is an appropriate and adaptive thing that my nervous system is doing, right? There could be tigers. (laughs) But take those same two sensory stimuli, right? Like hearing a leaf crunch behind me, seeing another leaf fall out of a tree in the corner of my eye, but now put me in my own backyard. It's a lovely Saturday morning. I'm drinking coffee with my husband. I'm probably not even going to register these sensations, let alone react to them, because in this situation, my threat scanner is turned way down. So in a well-modulated system, the knob can turn up and be more sensitive or turn down and, and, and not go off as easily. So... I think thinking of this makes sense because the problem happens when that, that, sensitivity level of our threat scanner gets stuck. And so I know a lot of kids where their systems are stuck at 11. So things that should be neutral land in their system as if they're threatening and trigger that protective response. They tell the kid, you're not safe. And it might not be fall leaves, but it might be that new pair of socks. It might be the sound of the vacuum cleaner. So these kids have their protective responses activated over and over and over throughout the day by things that should be Neutral. You know, their body is just getting the message you're not safe, you're not safe, you're not safe. And it's Mm -hmm. exhausting and these are the kids that that you see for you know anxiety difficulty with transitioning controlling rigid tendencies and right, i think that, because they're trying to protect themselves yeah yeah and 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 i would be that way in that dark yeah, alley too you know yeah. and the, the thing we can't emphasize enough that you touched on earlier is is the kid can't control their physiological response to this any more than I can turn off my spleen. I don't even know what my spleen does, but, you know, it's, it's just this automatic thing. Yeah. And it's so, so important to know and to understand because without knowing that there's a real reason underlying this, all we know is just to interpret, oh, the kid's being dramatic or they're just being picky or some behavioral explanation and the thing that can be extra confusing is, is that, that dial of sensitivity on our threat scanner. Some days the dial does kind of go down to an 8 instead of a 10. So maybe the kid can wear the socks one day, but then has a total meltdown the next. And without understanding that there's a real reason for that, when you understand the system, that can kind of feel like evidence that the kid's just choosing to be
1: difficult. Mm-hmm. Right, and so what can parents do if they're recognizing, okay, this isn't a choice, this is an automatic response my child is having? What can parents do? Maybe some examples of things um, to help support sensory development if they think their their child's, you know, sensory. Um, system is kind of up to a ten.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what you just said is the very first most important thing, believe your child. So if they say their socks hurt, believe them. the the pathways that 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 touch registration happens travels mm-hmm. the same brain pathways as pain. So if your kid says it's intolerable or it hurts, it really, truly, literally does. The second thing is trust your gut. I have so many parents that tell me, you know, I wish we'd gotten into therapy years ago. I kind of had this sense that something was off ever since my child was a baby. But, you know, I didn't want to be dramatic. I didn't want to, you know, be that parent. So I just figured, you know, maybe it's just a phase. Maybe they'll outgrow it. But, you know, the earlier it's caught, the better because these things are very unlikely to just spontaneously improve. The other thing parents can do is just encourage their kids to play. So these things are all developed through experience, refined through experience. So all these things that I've been talking about, climbing, crawling, swinging, jumping, rough and tumble play, all of that is just pure Gold. It's okay to get messy. It's healthy to get messy. I see some uh, parents of early eaters, you know, spoon feeding the baby food and then in between every single bite they dab off the mouth. <laughs> um, and they can accidentally send the message that mess is bad and, and threatening and contribute to discomfort with touch. So save cleanup for the end unless it's getting in their eyes. But playing outside in the mud and the grass and the sand, if your kid will do this, yay, that's wonderful. If they avoid it like the plague, then there might be a reason. So yeah, I think again, it's just sort of that idea of either getting out of the way and sort of promoting and, and understanding there's, there's value in that. There's just as much value in messy, muddy play um, as there is in, you know, some of those academic things.
1: Yes. And then teaching your child how to clean. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. Is, that some, is that something that's overwhelming for you yeah. Just make it a, a team, make cleaning a team sport at that yeah. age. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about how these sensory and motor, um, challenges impact behavior. You know, at what point, I mean, it, it's, I shouldn't say at what point, cause it, sensory and motor are integrated or happening and co-occurring, um, you know, from birth, but at what point do they start to show up at behavior and as externalized behavior? And sometimes withdrawal and internalized behavior. And those are kids that may avoid or kids we notice are refusing things or not wanting to do things. Um, what might that look like to an untrained eye? And, and, you know, what can, let's talk about what we can do about it. Some strategies.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point about withdraw too, because sometimes those are those are the good kids because they're the easy ones.
1: Because the, the good is in
0: quotes, there, everyone. Yes, yes. Thank what you for good. Right. <laughs> quote unquote good kids, the easy kids. But if you notice that your child is really avoiding things to an excessive degree, or, or they're they're unwilling or unable to participate in things, that might be something to take notice of. Mm-hmm. As far as you know, sort of those those two two pathways. I think the the skill development things are a little easier to, to pick up on and notice if it if it looks like, oh, my baby's just really super clumsier. or their, their balance seems way, way harder than I would expect it to, to be. If it's more that modulation, that threat detection system, um, that can also show up super early. So one common thing is diaper changes can be really, really hard and that can be multiple factors. So sometimes it's just laying the child down on their back. Just that movement is very frightening and intolerable to them. So they might start crying before you even started the diaper change. Um, some kids it's the cleaning and the the actual, the sense of touch that's involved with changing the diaper or changing clothes. And, and it looks like a very disproportionate, very distressed reaction with those kinds of things. And then older kids, it kind of just looks like a, a really short Fuse. <laughs> so the yeah. idea of you know there's these invisible things under the surface that are either working or not working. Um, if it's your balance and coordination, if things aren't happening at an automatic level that should happen automatically, part of your your brain power is going to that. So you know part of your brain power is going to okay. I have to sit upright in in my chair and it's work um, and it's challenging my balance system, and so I have less capacity to listen to the teacher or to take a. Note remote um, because some of that capacity is used up. And so I'm, I'm taxed. I'm, I'm stressed. I don't really have any extra extra space. Um, or if my threat scanner is totally going off, no, I'm not going to be able to be flexible when you tell me you're running late and we have to clean up our toys right now because I'm already maxed out. So so it's going to be these these bigger emotional outbursts looking responses. Um, I have parents tell me like, Oh, you know, my child just blows up out of nowhere for no reason, because we don't see what's going, we don't see the buildup under the surface. So other things that might look like is difficulty with tolerating transitions, routine changes, low frustration, tolerance, kind of like what we said about, you know, seeking out certain things to an excessive degree. I, I get a lot of, um, Climbers, crashers, (laughs) kids seeking out these really intense movements like my kid literally bounces off the walls or my kid has no um, pain awareness or a really high tolerance of pain and they're, you know, they literally crash their body into things. A lot of times that's a sign of they are finding things that that feel good to their body. Um, and there's a there's a wisdom there. There's a kernel of, you know, some of these things are actually therapeutic for them because they're similar to the kinds of things that we use in therapy to help facilitate change, but kids just need help finding the right recipe. So what what is the exact thing that I need to do? What's the frequency? What's the intensity? How often do I need to do it? But they sort of have this inner sense of, you know, they're they're on the right track because they they have some wisdom in the things that they seek out or the things that they avoid.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's so helpful to talk about these in the lens of behavior, because they're I want parents to know. they're absolutely calls I get as a child psychologist, and you may get this feedback if you reach out for therapy for your child, for anxiety or behaviors. Um, sometimes I will um realize that a child needs to get started on o t first. Before being ready for therapy, because there's, there's work to do within the body for some body regulation before we even get to the playing and the talking because that's very cognitive and very like top brain stuff. We could do a whole nother podcast on top down and bottom up. Yes. integration, <laughs> but we'll have to save that for another day. I did want to um, make sure we talked a little bit about feeding. Yeah. Um, I know that that is um, a question that a lot of parents are stressed about, a topic that you know really gives a lot of parents anxiety, um, and that's something else that occupational therapists can help with in young children. So what are some common um, concerns related to feeding, and when should parents ask for help? Yes, yes. So this is another one of those issues
0: where, you know, there's a reason for the behaviors that we see. Historically, feeding issues, if they weren't categorized as medical, if there wasn't something that we could see going on structurally medically, the other option was behavioral as if the kid is just choosing to be difficult at mealtimes. And we all know kids do what's easiest for them. So if it's truly easier for them to have like a full-blown drag-out meltdown because you gave them strawberry yogurt instead of vanilla, that means there are some real major barriers going on for them. Because if not, of course, it would be easier to just eat the yogurt. I always see some combination of sensory issues with food. So certain sensory properties registering as... Threatening and motor issues. So, eating is one of the most complex and finely detailed skills that children have to learn. We talked a little bit about the fine motor skills of the hand and how they really rely on all these other foundational gross motor skills. Eating is another fine motor skill. So, your tongue and your lips and your cheeks have to move in very fine ways. And it's actually each category, each texture category of foods requires a different type of coordination in your mouth. So, it's very, very complicated usually the referring concern that I get is picky eating. Um, And this often looks like a really narrow range. So, you know, my kid only eats 10 foods in the whole world, or maybe they're very detailed specifics um, and intolerance of change. So some kids might only eat a few foods in certain categories. Fruits and vegetables are usually the hardest one, or they might be very particular about presentation, preparation, brand. So, you know, maybe my kid can eat chicken nuggets from a particular fast food place, but not homemade chicken nuggets and definitely not any other kind of chicken because chicken is not just chicken. It's very specific about the presentation and the preparation. And this is because of all the details we mentioned earlier. So a detail you and I might not even notice becomes insurmountable for these kiddos. A processed food is usually easier because it's more predictable. It's made in a way where it's the exact same every time. Um, So whereas... You know one apple might be more sweet one might be more tart this one is bland this one's crunchy this one's soft it's really hard to know what you're gonna get so when those details matter so much for kids those things are so much harder um, and there's a reason that junk food is so easy to eat because there are people who specifically design them to be the easiest possible things to eat, so that we can eat them mindlessly while we're binging Netflix, and they can sell more chips. <laughs> but truly, the things that kids avoid eating are are physiologically harder and more difficult. Mm-hmm. So I'd say you know a time to get help is if you find yourself being really stressed at meal times, and if your kid seems really stressed, and if you have to be very particular about how things are presented or if you have to use distraction to get your kid to eat if your kid can't tolerate change like vanilla yogurt instead of strawberry another good rule of thumb is if they have fewer than 10 foods in each category so fewer than 10 carbs fewer than 10 proteins fewer than 10 fruits and vegetables um, that might be a good idea to consult with somebody trained in feeding
1: yeah Rose, thank you so much for joining us today. This has all been so, so helpful. And I hope we'll give parents some things to think about, maybe some terms to research and look into. <laughs> Anything else you want to share with anyone?
0: Um, you're doing a great job. If you're a parent listening to this podcast, you're probably, you know, you probably have some, some difficulties that you're trying to work through. Um, so just know that there is help out there, trust your gut
1: and you're doing great. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Raising Young Children in Wake County, brought to you by the Project Enlightenment Foundation, which you can find at projectenlightenmentfoundation.org. We would love for you to subscribe to this show and share it with your friends and fellow parents. We're all in this together, and we hope we can make a difference in the lives of parents and children. Thanks to K&L Gates, a global law firm with offices in Raleigh and RTP for their generous contribution to make this podcast happen. Thank you to our sponsors, the Empire Gives Back Foundation and Empire Eats, which includes the downtown Raleigh restaurants, City, Gravy, Raleigh Times, Mecca, and the Pitt Authentic Barbecue, bringing great food to the community as well as supporting local causes, especially those that touch the lives of children. Thanks to BHDP, an award-winning international architectural firm, which is recognized for intelligent, innovative, and inspiring design solutions in architecture, planning, and interior design. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we'll see you again soon on Raising Young Children in Wake County.